Amen. Please be seated. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Galatians again this morning. This is the first week of Advent. Hope some will come back tonight to celebrate the hanging of the greens. Yes, the greens have been hung, but we'll talk about what they mean. We'll also share together about uh, what we'll be praying for this Advent season regarding God moving in our lives, in our hearts. It is the first week of Advent, but I'm still in Galatians. And there's just two sermons left in this wonderful book, probably the oldest New Testament book, the first one written by Paul, uh, which makes sense when you consider the foundational nature of its content. It's written to make very clear the gospel, to make clear how we can know we're right with God. Are you right with God? Not a more important question I can ask you. Are you right with God? And if so, how? Are you right with God because you come to church, because you believe in Jesus and you do these things? Are you right with God solely based on what Jesus has done, accomplished for you? It's a big difference between those two. They can look the same on the outside, but they're not the same in the inside. One is a trust in self, ultimately. The other is complete dependence upon God for salvation in Christ. And this is what Paul writes to correct. Because people had come to Christ, they were Gentiles without a religious background as such, they heard the message of the gospel, they knew they were sinners by the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and they grasped Jesus as Savior by the work of the Holy Spirit, and they knew there was nothing they could do to commend themselves to God. That's how the church started, it grew strong this way, purity of the gospel. But then after time, some of the older older religious type came in and said, you know, it's okay to believe in Jesus, we believe that too, but you've got to do this, this, and this also. You've got to eat a certain way. As a rite or a ritual, you should undergo. You've got to do some of this other stuff, too. You can't just depend on just believing in Jesus. And so Paul writes a kind of in-your-face epistle to say, this is how you know you're right with God, and it's by faith in Christ alone in his work. The works and the things will come from that relationship, but you're a son or a daughter based on what God has done for you in Christ first. Now, as sons and daughters, go and live this way. In the first four chapters, he builds up this foundation of what a right relationship with God looks like, faith in Christ. We are not justified by works of the law. Then the last two chapters, he speaks about what a right understanding of the gospel, the good news, how we're made right with God, what it will do in our life. And he compels us, he challenges us in chapter 5 to walk by the Spirit, not by the flesh. And he sets up this, this opposition that we all know too well, flesh versus the Spirit. The will of God versus what our sinful fallen nature wants us to do. The temporal versus the eternal. And we're told to rely upon the Spirit of God for our guidance, our direction, our maturing in the faith, for life, for everything. And then in chapter 6, he talks about people when they fall into sin, how they need gentle restoration, how to gently restore. Now we come to the portion of the scripture that we're studying now, starting in verse 6. And I'll read verse 6 through verse 10 of Galatians 6, where we see... Paul introduced a concept that is woven throughout the scriptures, this concept of spiritual sowing and reaping, and it's embodied here again in verses 6 through 10. Here now as I read God's word. One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. 
and let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word, for its clarity. But Lord, at the same time, we ask for your Holy Spirit's ministry among us to help us to understand, not only to see what is true, but also, Lord, help us to know what to do. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters that you would give them great encouragement as they hear the words of life again today, that we would bring glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you had a copy of the bulletin from February 17, 2008, you would have seen the same sermon title in that bulletin as you see today, yet it was attached to a different text. That text was back in the book of Hosea. Hopefully some of you remember that. I don't kid myself how much you remember. I don't remember what I ate four days ago, but I needed it then. So I understand you may not remember, but Hosea was a book written to God's people, and they were selling out to the world. Uh, they were they were buying the temporary bag of goods that the world was presenting to them. And the prophet Hosea was saying, remember that if you reap or if you sow into that, if you invest into that, into the world, it's brokenness. If you invest into that, you will reap brokenness too. And in Hosea 8 verse 7, hundreds of years before Paul writes, the prophet says, for they sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. This concept of spiritual sowing and reaping, seed time and harvest, woven into the fabric of the Bible, really the fabric of our lives. Paul recaptures this now when he writes it in Galatians. But you know, he didn't just say it here. When he wrote to the Corinthians, a group of people much like ourselves, a church uh, weighed down with the world, the world around us, the world within us, he says to the Corinthians, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So the concept of spiritual sowing and reaping is certainly a thoroughly biblical one, Old and New Testament alike. Whatever is planted will be the thing that is harvested in due time. That's how it works. Look at verse 7 of our text, Galatians 6. Do not be deceived. In other words, don't don't be lulled into thinking that we can cheat this or that it won't count for us this way. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. In other words, it might seem for a while we can cheat it, but not for long. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. I have to ask myself the self-analytical question in light of this. Tony, what are you sowing? What are you investing your time in? your energy energy in. How am I giving what God has given me as a stewardship? How am I using God-given talents and abilities? And I would pose the question for you as well. When you consider the concept of spiritual sowing and reaping, ask yourself the question, what are you investing in, sowing in, planting in, cultivating? What are you giving yourself to? That is what you will reap in one form or another, Period. Not what you wish you were sowing. What are you sowing? Because that will be your harvest so that no one is surprised when the harvest comes. John Stott said it well in capturing this principle. He says that this is a principle of order and consistency which is written into all life, material and moral. Look again at verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. 
Think of all the times in which man has tried to mock God, tried to buck this, tried to go against this as if they would somehow escape it. I think back in the Old Testament in the Tower of Babel incident where these people, despite God's admonition to separate, multiply, grow throughout the earth. Instead, they said, no, we'll do what we want, create our own kingdom, and even make this tower that is unprecedented, bigger and better than anything that ever been built, to get in the face of God. And they mocked God all the way, but God would not ultimately be mocked, and he miraculously gives them new tongues. They cannot even cooperate any longer, can't understand each other, and are forced to spread and will do God's will anyways, whether they like it or not. The Pharaoh of Egypt, trying to mock God, ultimately found himself embarrassed and defeated and in sorrow as the Israelites left his stronghold. Goliath mocked God. You remember that picture? I always got mad when I was a kid and heard him calling the Israelites little dogs. As much as I love dogs, I really hated how he called them dogs. He ended up with a little kid hitting him in the forehead with a rock and having his head cut off. That's what happens to God mockers in one form or another. Nebuchadnezzar, remember him mocking God? He was made like unto an animal, eating grass, looking like a beast. King Herod in the New Testament, mocking God's glory, bringing glory to himself, eventually dies being eaten by worms. You and I know that we cannot cheat the spiritual law of seed time and harvest. And if I'm totally honest with you, if you're honest with yourself, any of the challenges that I have faced in my own life, most of them, most of them, I have contributed to by sowing certain seeds that have led me to that place. Not everything, I understand, were a mixture of relationships and interactions with people, but generally speaking, some of the greater challenges of my life, the greatest struggles, discouragements, have largely been because of what I have sowed, what I've invested in that area. Whatever is planted will be the thing that is harvested in due time. So here in our passage, Paul applies this law of spiritual sowing and reaping to several areas. Look at, let's look at the areas. Verse 7 kind of is an interpretive verse over all that he says, reaching up into the verses before and down into the verses below. So let's look at verse 6. We'll see that this connects well with this law of spiritual sowing and reaping. What do we think is important? What do we invest in? What do we give towards? What do we plant? Verse 6 says, one who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. In other words, if you're learning the words of life, if you have access and are given help in interpreting the words of life, the word of God, you should give to help those who are teaching it because it's an investment in that which is eternal and most important. Think about the word of God and the great gift it is to us. In order to walk by the Spirit, we discovered that we must have what the Spirit has wrought, the Word itself. We have to have the Word of God to walk by the Spirit. You can't just walk by the Spirit mystically through life, waiting for voices to speak to you. It's the Word of God open to us by the Spirit of God that allows us to see through lenses that allow us to interpret the world in a way that's right. Everyone wants to know the meaning of life. Only those given new eyes through the lens of the Scriptures have an opportunity to get this truth. Hardly anything could be more valuable than having a right perspective on the world, a worldview that is shaped by God's will, his word. The most important gift any of us can have. So many here have been given it throughout your life. 
God has assembled providentially a small army of people given the gift of teaching and preaching to help you understand. It's the chief tool in the hand of God to grow us spiritually, to give us wisdom. Think of the prophets, the apostles, the early church fathers, those martyrs, the reformers, the many pastors and teachers of old, pastors today, parents, Sunday school teachers, school teachers, mentors, for me, never far from my memory are all those who have taught me the words of life. Pastor Ben, Pastor Bob, Pastor Kevin, Pastor Doug, Pastor Nick, Pastor Phil. It was Alan, Scott, Ralph, Mr. Coleman, a guy that I didn't even agree with named Billy Joe. My teachers at Moody, Pastor David. My teachers at Covenant, Pastor Don, Pastor Doug, Phil File, Pastor Mark. And the list for me goes on. I was humbled by how many people God has put in my life so I know the word of God. What greater gift could God give me than exposure to the words of life? We value so many other things that people put in. And we want to invest in all these areas. I want to put my child in this school or in this place, under this tutelage, in this sport program, in this, all of which can be fine. But we put so much energy into that when we stop to think what gives us real eternal view, a real eternal view about things that really count. It's the word of God and those who have taught us this. Praise God for all the individuals who sacrificed in their lives to be able to teach and preach so that I could have life and have it more abundantly. How could I put a price on the word of God taught? What value do you think the word of God being taught has? Paul says in this light, one who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. It's an investment. It's encouraging spiritual eternal growth. Paul said to those who he was ministering to, if we have sown spiritual things among you, 1 Corinthians 9, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Whatever God has blessed me with, you with, whatever it is, I should share it with those who have given or are giving the word of God. Too much we reward programs, motivational speakers, vision casters, Our value should be on the word of God taught and preached. How could I put a price on such a thing? Yes, it refers to the salary and benefits that we pay our pastors, that we provide for our pastors in perspective and in relationship to the community they're ministering to. It also refers to the regular encouragement and prayer and respect that is needed to encourage these men to treat our teachers of the word. And this regard shows how important we think the word of God is. And very simply and very bluntly, a church that skimps in providing for her pastors is a church that doesn't really cherish the word of God, period. I love the vows that a congregation in the PCA, indeed you took, at least vicariously through those who came before you, uh, when a pastor takes a call, part of it says, in order that you may be free of worldly care and concern, we commit to paying you the sum of. That's a great vow and a right vow for a church to take. I'm so grateful that I'm at a place where I don't stress about this. I think the elders understand that it is their responsibility. Before God, they have to answer for what the pastors are provided. How important do the elders think the word of God is? That is how they will provide. And this takes great wisdom because you should never make a guy rich, whatever rich may be. They have to decide that. 
But he shouldn't want also to where he's stressed and cannot study the word of God. And this happens all too often in churches. America's been blessed. Many pastors make lots of money as pastors. But the world over, and in, the in history, the view of the pastor has always been that, well, he doesn't really do much except on Sunday. And so, therefore, it's okay to keep poor and humble. Lord, you keep them humble, we'll keep them poor. That's the concept. I'm thankful not to be at a place like that, but I don't surmise that it will always be that way. It's important for us to recall the important words of Paul to Timothy. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. It's about priority. It's about what we think is important. It's about what we think we should be investing in and encouraging. Encouraging the word of God to be taught, to be diligently studied, and to relate to the people for the words of life. They are. Paul applies this law of spiritual sowing and reaping in the area of the ministry of the word, but he also applies it in another area. Look at verse 8. We see him applying the same law in, the verse, in verse 8 where it says, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So now he applies this law or this principle to our process of personal spiritual growth, how we grow in Christ-likeness. It, it, it comes down to how we sow, whether we sow to the flesh or sow to the spirit. It's really that simple in this passage. I know it's not that simple in life, but understand this is how it works. Just like in chapter 5, he uses a competition between the flesh and the spirit. Remember what the flesh is. The flesh refers to our sinful lusts and desires that, that are from our fallenness. We, and they always center around immediate satisfaction or relatively soon, something we gain from it, uh, some of the way we feel. Uh, it's usually sensual, not always, though, something we strive after. That's temporary, really, when you analyze its real value. I know we think if we invest monetarily for the future that that's a real long-term view. But remember, life itself is exceptionally short compared to eternity. So even there, we can sometimes be lulled into following fleshly lusts and desires and disguising it as a long-term view always has to do with something that means immediate satisfaction, at least relative immediate satisfaction. That's the flesh. The spirit, though, refers to God's will and its desire for our lives, which is far-reaching. Yes, it's now, but it's also into eternity. The flesh refers to pursuing things with a temporal satisfaction, whereas the spirit refers to things with long-term, eternal value, stability over the long haul. Sowing to the flesh when we do this, it means to take actions that will cause fleshly fruit to come, and they'll crowd out spiritual fruit. John Stott writes a wonderful commentary on Galatians. I've used it throughout. Listen to what Stott says about sowing to the flesh. I think this will help you as it has helped me. Stott says that the seeds we sow are largely thoughts and deeds. He says that every time we allow our mind to harbor a grudge, nurse a grievance, or entertain an impure fantasy, or wallow in self-pity, we are sowing to the flesh. And I stopped and I thought about that. Because we certainly are guilty of nursing grievances often enough in our own minds and hearts. We harbor grudges. I guess I'd ask myself the question, how can my harboring this grudge possibly bring glory to Christ? How could... Nursing a grievance. You hear what it's saying? Nursing. Nursing, what does a nurse do? Help. Serve. Make healthy. A grievance. To serve a grievance. To build it. To allow it to grow like the proverbial snowball down the hill. 
how can that ultimately bring glory to Christ? It can't. That's sowing those seeds to the flesh when we do it. But Stock goes on. He says, every time we linger in bad company, hang out with people who you know will bring you down. Every time we linger in bad company, whose insidious influence we know we cannot resist. Then he says, every time we lie in bed when we ought to be up and and praying. Every time we read pornographic literature, and he wrote this before the time of the Internet. The accessibility of that stuff now is just off the charts. Every time we linger there, that's sowing to the flesh, and it will yield fleshly fruit. Absolutely. God can't be mocked in this law. And it robs your life in every way. Every time we take a risk which strains our self-control, we are sowing, sowing, sowing to the flesh, Stott says. And then he says, pastorally, some Christians sow to the flesh every day and then wonder why they do not reap holiness. He says that holiness, though, is a harvest. Whether we reap it or not depends almost entirely on what and where we sow. Stott's right. He captures this. He nails this verse well. Sowing to the flesh, taking actions that will cause fleshly fruit. I just want to say very personally, especially to those who aren't married yet, you have so much before you and so many choices. And you can sow to the flesh. You will reap awful fruits. But I'll say to everybody, think of what you're sowing to right now, whatever it is for you. Recognize that those fruits will come. It's only reference back to the gospel of God's grace that will turn us from continual sowing to the flesh. The flesh only wants this, and make sure you know this. It only wants to kill you. It doesn't want to satisfy you. So we sow, not to the flesh, but by God's grace to the Spirit. This means to take actions that combat the flesh. They build into godliness. They encourage the service of God and others. Think of some of the ways we sow to the Spirit. Very clearly, as mentioned already, exposure to the Word of God. This is why we need the Word of God faithfully taught so much and so often. We need this to combat the flesh. Fellowship with God through prayer. Access to Him. I don't mean all the prepared prayers we have, which are sacred and wonderful indeed, but I mean just your communication with your Father, who's bought you with a price on a regular basis. Asking Him, God, help me. Fellowship with God's people. Being with other people, you may be discouraged and then become encouraged by other brothers and sisters. Or you may be encouraging to others. Whatever the case, the fellowship of the body is of utmost importance. You're sowing to the Spirit. Serving others in manifold ways. Responding to the grace of God to us by serving others. We sow to the Spirit when we do this. Resisting the cry of the flesh. Knowing that we can't just keep saying yes to the flesh and expect any other fruit but fleshly fruit. How about constantly becoming reacquainted with the gospel? The sacraments, among other things, are wonderful, wonderful reminders of the gospel of God's grace. Total passivity. We have received the gift from God. We recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ's sacrifice. And we're reacquainted with the gospel on a regular basis. Verse 8, look at it again. It says, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Notice the two fruits. One is corruption. The other is eternal life. One is something that is temporal, has a shelf life. It will stink after a while. The other 
will go on forever and have constant application. It will have constant pointing to the glory of God. Well, in addition to the ministry of the Word and the process of our spiritual growth, sowing to the Spirit, Paul applies this law of spiritual sowing and reaping in a final area. Look at verse 9 and verse 10. We see the reference to the serving of others or ministering to others. Really, we're serving God as we serve others. It's almost like he telegraphs. People will say, yes, but sowing to the Spirit means service to others. That's part of it. And that's hard. That wears us out. Look at verse 9. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So verse 9 says, or it telegraphs, that we may grow weary. We may be faint in doing good. What is doing good? Doing good is doing that which is spiritual or eternal, has significance beyond the temporal. It refers to sowing to the Spirit. Good things have spiritual significance. They bring glory to God. But here's the thing. People grow weary serving all the time. And let's be totally honest about what we go through in our minds, every one of us. We lapse in and out of it. We say to ourselves, man, I've been laboring at this for so long, whatever it is. It could be parenting. It could be teaching, working in the church in some way, serving your neighbor, whatever it is. You're serving others. And you start to grow weary. And often, this is why, we say to ourselves, I've been doing this for so long, no one notices. No one says thank you. My children never appreciate what I do. They, they don't know what I've done. And we grow weary in doing good because we have the completely wrong focus on what doing good is and who it's for. We all do it. You could start out with really good motives and we get weary. And we get weary because we think we're doing it for God when in fact we're doing it for self. If you are doing something with the expectation of a thank you or appreciation, no matter how you sanctify it up, no matter how you dress it, you're doing it for yourself and not for God. Now, I do not mean to say that we as brothers and sisters should not encourage others with thanks. That's part of sharing all good things. Absolutely, we should be doing this. That encourages the brethren. But as the one who's doing it, if the reason I'm doing it, or I'm downhearted because I'm not receiving thanks... That is a window into my heart which says that really why I'm doing this is I want to be recognized. I want some glory. And this is often why we grow weary in doing good. Weary means to grow faint, to be discouraged, to lose heart. People serving God and others can become burned out or get run down easily enough when they do it for appreciation. How do we avoid this? Well, we have to know we're serving God for his glory first. As part of the long view that it takes as we sow to the Spirit. Know that others will benefit whether they appreciate your efforts or not, especially your children. How many of you are so appreciative of your parents now and feel most ashamed for how little we showed it when we had the opportunity? Eventually, you will see a harvest. It says in the text, in verse 9, for in due season. Due season means when God wills for it to happen. We will reap a harvest. If we do not give up, don't just stop, don't quit. Verse 10 says, and it sum, sums up this reference to this law of seed time and harvest. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, 
and especially to those who are the household of faith. I want us to think of this in the context of Galatians. Do good to everyone. Why not? Think of this, brothers and sisters. God, in his mercy, in his mercy, has taken his own son. He has sent him to earth to take on flesh. To give up independent access to some of the traits of deity that Jesus had with the Father in eternity past. So that Jesus could take on flesh, be spit upon by his own creation. Go to the cross, transferring his righteousness to those whom the Father had given him. Taking upon himself the sin of me. And then going to the cross, dying on the cross so that I could call God my Father. And this great exchange that occurs happens at his expense alone. I pay nothing for it. He does it. And if God never gave me another thing in this life, but the salvation he gave me in Jesus, he's given me way more than I ever deserve. So in that light, can I not be good to other people? Can my reaction to God's goodness to me, can it not be to be good to everyone, to give to everyone, to sacrifice to other, for others, to minister to others? Why not, given what he has done? And it says, do this to everyone as you have opportunity. And by the way, especially... Those who are in the household of faith. And this is the church, your family. You know, the only family that goes on for eternity is the church family. That's the truth of God's redemption. So let's do good for one another here. And I think this digs into something deeper about the Great Commission itself. In other words, if the church would actually not just preach on the milk carton in front of people, the milk crate in front of people telling everyone about how Jesus came to save them and do nothing in their own community to take care of each other. Why would a world look at that and think it's authentic? But when the people of God are faithful to the word of God and then do good to each other, don't devour each other, don't harbor grudges, don't nurse grievances, take care of the needs when they come up in the body, I promise you that this sends a resounding message to a primarily self-serving world that this place is different and should be paid attention to. We're ignored largely because we do a lot of talking and no doing. And so, here, as you have opportunity, in light of what's come in the first five chapters of Galatians in the Gospel, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are in the household of faith. You know, when a farmer plants, they do not expect an immediate harvest. No one could ever be a good farmer who thought that way. Yesterday, as we were driving back from our Thanksgiving uh, celebration with Sherry's family down near the Newton area, I counted no less than 25 combines at work. Now, from New York, seeing a combine, combines are cool. I mean, they're awesome. I wish they went a little faster on the road. But you've got to move over when a combine's coming down the road. So that's an awesome vehicle any way you look at it. 25 of them I counted working in the fields, cutting beans, cutting corn. You know when those beans and that corn was planted? Late spring. Five to seven months later, the farmers are harvesting. They have to have a long view. They would have liked to harvest it probably back in September, October, but rain and things as they were, they had to analyze that situation, decide when the moisture was just right, when their crops were ready, and then when to harvest. There was a lot of thought that went into that, and it's over a five to seven month period. I cannot think that far ahead. I would be a horrible farmer. I mean, if it doesn't happen quick, I'm pretty upset. Oh, I just did this. You know, I remember planting, you know, the little seeds and the next day, I'm like, why aren't they growing? Well, we act like that as, as believers oftentimes. We think that automatically, well, I just read my Bible, so why is everything changing for me tomorrow? 
Well, the reason why we need all the means of grace that I've spoken of, all the different tools in our life to help us grow, to sow to the Spirit, is because this is a long haul. This is a long marathon, not a short sprint whatsoever. And this is why this language of seed time and harvest is used. So we get a proper gauge on what we're looking at when we think of due season reaping. I hope, brothers and sisters, as we consider an Advent season, we think of what God did over the centuries to bring about the coming of his son when the fullness of time had come. If he's so precise about all these things, I promise you he's that precise about your own life and what he's doing in it. This law has been from before eternity, continues now into the, from the past all the way until now. It's true that what we sow, we also reap. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for giving us your word for what it means to us and how it directs us. I pray, God, that we would not be short-view people, that we would consider the long view. Give us grace, Lord, to not sow to the flesh. It's just too easy to keep sowing every day to the flesh. Lord, we confess that this discourages us. We need your grace. Lord, the same grace that has saved us, we rely upon now, the Lord Jesus and his perfect work to pull us from sowing to the flesh. Help us, God, to sow to the Spirit. Lord, we don't want to live for yesterday or what we think should happen this moment. Lord, we want to live unto eternity, unto the future, now and forever. Lord, I pray as we start this Advent season of reflection that it would not be ho-hum to us, just another year. We wouldn't get sucked into all the commercialism around it, but that we would be renewed in our encouragement about what you have done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ and how that affects us today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.